Okay, I'm going to try not blow you out here. This is really close. So if it gets too loud, Rob, just shut me down. Um, we're going to do two or three things today. You should have a handout in front of you. I have promised you for some time that we were going to do a, a 30,000 foot overview of eschatological chronology. That's a very fancy way of saying the timeline of future prophecy. The last several months since June, we've been in Revelation. We've been kind of going detail by detail, verse by verse in an exegetical fashion, that's an explanatory fashion, kind of looking at the small print, but we've really never jumped up to about 30,000 feet and taken a look at the big picture uh, overview, if you will, of what prophecy looks like and the timeline of prophecy. What you have in front of you is a set of charts from um, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book, The Footsteps of the Messiah. Uh, he is a Jewish scholar, historian, uh, very, very thoughtful, uh, individual and he wrote the book The Footsteps of the Messiah. So the charts you're going to see came right out of that book. I talked to Becky at his ministry on Thursday and I said, do I have your permission to go ahead and use these as handouts uh, for the class? And she said, that's not a problem at all. So understand that when we get into biblical chronology, especially prophetic biblical chronology, things get somewhat ambiguous. There are some things we're extremely certain of in terms of biblical chronology with respect to future prophecy. There are some things that are very, very ambiguous. And Dr. Fruchtenbaum will tell you that even though we put these together, some areas of biblical revelation, especially the book of Revelation, we're not sure what happens when. So understand there's competent scholars on many, many different sides of when things happen who could take issue with this. So I'm not gonna tell you Take this to the bank, this is the word of the Lord, but it comes from a very conservative biblical scholar who understands Jewish history, <clears throat> which is mandatory if you're going to really understand the book of Revelation. So what I wanted to do today is spend some time with you on the first two charts. I'd like you to fold this up and bring it with you every week in your Bible because from time to time we're going to dip into it. But I wanted to give you a high-level overview. The bulk of the lesson's not going to be on these two charts. I just realized I've had some questions from folks in this class on the rapture. We have assumed, and I have made the assumption with you throughout this period of time, that the rapture occurs prior to the tribulation, but we've really never gone through a biblical documentation of that. So today, the bulk of the time we're going to spend on the rapture, what scripture says about the rapture and why we draw the conclusions we do. So the first slide you're seeing, the chronology of es eschatology. Eschatology, of course, is the study of end times, the study of future times. You're going to see the cross on the far left. And we are living in the post period of the cross. We're living after the cross of Jesus Christ, after the resurrection, and something we call the dispensation of grace. Dispensation is a fancy word that says, how does God deal with humanity during various periods of history? At this point in time, he deals with us on the basis of grace based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we're in the dispensation of grace. Underneath that, you're going to see something called the church age. The church was birthed at Pentecost. The church will end at the rapture. The church of Jesus Christ has not been a perennial institution on the planet. For the bulk of human history, God worked through the nation of Israel. That was his point of connectivity with humanity. It's only been since the cross, actually since Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, that the church age has been instituted. Underneath the church age, you'll see a little AD 2003. That's when Arnold happened to write this chart. So he said, I don't know when the rapture's coming, but it'll be after 2003. That's when he put the chart together. So you will notice about, half, about almost at the very end of this thing called the church age, you're going to see a little gray pillar going up. You're going to find out that's the rapture. And we're going to talk about that extensively. After the rapture comes the seven-year tribulation period, the period of seven years. In the Old Testament, it's called the day of the Lord, the day of Jehovah. It's when God deals with sin, Satan, and this broken planet and comes back and repossesses it. So that's that seven-year period. Much of the book of Revelation after chapter 5, from chapter 6 to 18, is all about the tribulation. And that's where we've been for the book of Revelation. We've spent a couple of months on the first uh, uh, two or three chapters, and then we've been in the middle of this seven-year period for that period of time. At the end of the tribulation, we're obviously going to come to the Messianic kingdom. Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to physically set up a literal kingdom on planet Earth, and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years 
from the capital city of Jerusalem. That's called the Messianic Kingdom, also known as the Millennium, which means a thousand, a thousand years. And by the way, there's, if you want to look at that, you can check Revelation 20. It's all filled with that at that point in time. At the end of the thousand years, we know that Satan is going to be loosed for a period of time from the abyss. He will be, by the way, in prison for the thousand year period. Satan will not be on the planet. Jesus Christ will rule the planet. At the end of that Messianic Kingdom period, Satan will be loosed for a short period of time. We'll have the final battle between good and evil. God will obviously conquer. And at that point in time, we go into the eternal state, which is a new heaven and a new earth. The new heaven and new earth is only mentioned in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the only part of scripture where we really get into the new heaven and the new earth. The millennium, the messianic kingdom, is shot through all through the Old Testament. So we're gonna be spending some more time on that. But this is kind of the highest level overview, if you will, Going forward, what is yet to come? Now, if you'd go to your next chart, which I think should be chart number three, there are 15 here. If you want to go to Aerial Ministries, you can pull those up as well. Chart number three is the church age. And this is all Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. For those of you that have been with us for a period of time, Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, we talked about the letters of Jesus Christ to the seven churches. And you can see them listed from Ephesus all the way to Laodicea, the apostate church. That's the era of time that we're in at this point in time. And you can see the period of the rapture is somewhere toward the end of that Laodicean period. And of course, after the rapture, at some point after the rapture, maybe not immediately, comes what we call a great tribulation. So we are currently living in the church age. And if you look at the chronology of Revelation 2 and 3, it appears that we're living in the very end of the church age. In other words, it's about over. Uh, Jesus said, I am coming quickly. He didn't define what quickly meant, but it meant imminently. There's nothing that needs to be happened from a prophetic standpoint before Christ to come. Now underneath uh, the Laodicean age, you're gonna see a lot of arrows. And those arrows are all connected with boxes. World War I and World War II, the state of Israel being regathered May 14, 1948. Jerusalem united under Jewish control June 6, 1967. Uh, the Russian and Allied invasion of Israel, the one world government. Go over to the right-hand side, you'll see the Ten Kingdom, the rise of Antichrist. Those are all what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25 are birth pangs. They're birth pangs. The birth is not taking place yet, but the labor pains are beginning. This new world that Jesus is going to inaugurate is being in the process of born at that point in time. So we're going to be spending some time on this. What I'd like you to do as much as anything else is as we go through the rest of Revelation, just keep this with you in your hands so you can kind of get an idea, okay, where in time does this occur? Where in time does this event happen or does this person uh, come. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to be spending a lot of time on the Antichrist. The week after that, the false prophet uh, in chapter 13. And I want you to kind of keep an eye on this. So bring this with you from uh, at, at class and we will be going through it in uh, more detail so you can get a handle on where that is. What I'd like to do now <clears throat> is just keep your finger on the right hand side of that page where it says the period of the rapture. I want to spend some time with you on the rapture. We've had conversations over and over again in Revelation, and we've made the assumption, I've been very clear with you, that I take a pre-tribulation rapture perspective, which means as near as we can tell, the church is not present at the period of the Great Tribulation. The church is in heaven with Jesus, but we've really never gone through sequentially and talked about that. So what I'd like you to do is get your pens out, and you're gonna, we're going to look at three major key passages with respect to the rapture. The first one is John 14, verses 1 to 3. John 14, verses 1 to 3. Jesus has told his disciples that he is leaving. He is going back to his Father in heaven, and they are grieving. They are in, in sorrow uh, because he is literally saying goodbye, and they do not want to see their beloved teacher, masters, and uh, Lord go to heaven. Uh, he, so he's, they don't know where he's going. Thomas is kind of saying, well, where are you going, and how are we going to know the way, etc." So let's look at the first three verses. Jesus tells his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So here's the principle. Jesus is coming again to take believers with him to his heavenly home. 
Now, I want to give you a little bit of a word picture because this is so Jewish. You know, Jesus is a Jew and he's talking to Jewish people. This is, this is wedding marriage metaphor. You need to understand that. In, a, in, in that particular scenario, a young man and a young woman were betrothed at a quite a young age. They might have been pledged to each other from the time they were children. You didn't get to say, I'm falling in love with so-and-so. Your parents said, listen, you're already falling in love with so-and-so because I already got you arranged. You're going to marry so-and-so. And you knew that at quite an early age. At some point in time, the bridegroom, you know, had made a determination with family that the time for the wedding was approaching and he needed to prepare a place for his bride to live, right? A nest. Got to have a nest if you're going to have babies, right? So he now builds an addendum onto mom and dad's place. His father's house was where they were going to live. So the bridegroom would build an addendum onto the house, an apartment in the back or something, but it's all connected to the main house. So you see these Jewish homes that are absolutely complexes. I mean, you got three and four generations living together because dad, the father's house, was the place where the bridegroom was going to build an apartment for the bride. So he would spend some time building this place, right, at his father's house. And then when the house was built, the apartment was built, the addendum was built, he would go and with his friends and get the bride. And the bride did not know when he was coming, right? So she had to be what? Ready at any time. And it was a huge party. They would all you know, go through town parading torches and lights and everything to get the bride and her wedding party, etc. So they would come back to the father's house and they would have the wedding and they would have a week-long festival, seven-day party. You know, none of this cake and punch and cookies bit for 20 minutes. I mean, these people celebrate, right? So the wedding in Cana was that kind of a deal. It was a, it was a big deal. So Jesus is using that metaphor. He says, look, my father's house has, is a big place, and I'm preparing a lot of rooms, a lot of dwelling places. There's an apartment with each one of your names on it, right? And I'm preparing this, and I'm going to come back and what? I'm going to take you with me so we can live forever together in my father's house. You get in the picture? That's the picture here. That's the promise. So he is leaving in order to return to heaven, but he's not just going to heaven. He's going to heaven to prepare a place so he can come back for them. That's the purpose of his leaving. So he's promised to return, but he doesn't indicate timing. So Jesus, throughout the New Testament, tells his disciples, be ready, be on the alert, watch, pray. You don't know when I'm coming. Remember the parable of the ten foolish virgins, the ten wise virgins? That's the picture. You must be ready because he's coming back. So the picture here is one of eternal relationship. He's coming back to earth to take his church, us, to be with him in his heavenly home forever. So the destination of the, of the rapture is heaven. It's not earth. By the way, newsflash, none of us are going to stay here. I don't care how, how great your life is, you're not staying here, right? Got it? You've already got a, a due date, you're going to leave. There's going to come a day, right? Now we may all go together. If Jesus comes back in the next 10 minutes, we're probably going together, right? I don't know whether your bus trip comes before mine, but if he comes back now, I'm like thrilled, okay? Next passage. So we know, number one, he's coming back to bring us to himself in heaven. Next passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. This is the next major chapter, if you will, in the chronology of the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. This discusses not just the program of the rapture, but the chronology of the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore, what? Comfort one another with these words. Here's the principle. When Jesus returns, dead believers will be resurrected, 
living believers will be translated. I'll define that for you. And together we will meet Jesus in the air to live forever with him in heaven. So that Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians Christians because there was a major question. They believed in the rapture, but they were a little bit concerned about family members who had already died and gone to heaven, right? They said, gosh, this rapture sounds wonderful. We're going to meet Jesus in the air. That's good for us who are living. But what about those who are already died? I mean, what's going to happen with them at that point in time? Are they going to miss out on the benefits? If the, if the rapture occurs after they die, then what? So when you see, by the way, you're going to notice a little word in here called sleep. For the believer in Scripture, sleep is a synonym for death. Remember when Jesus was going to raise Jairus' daughter, he says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And what do they do? They laughed at him because the world has no solution for death, none. One of the reasons I can stand here and talk with you today is because we all have people we know and love in heaven, yes? We've all got that. We've all had people in heaven. We've got lots of anniversaries in this room besides Marin and Mia's and mine, right? We have lots of anniversaries. We can stand here and tell you this because Jesus Christ has a place ready for us and your names are ready on it. You're written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's guaranteed. It's done, right? That's hope. That's tremendous hope. So let's sequence this. First, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So Jesus Christ... Our bridegroom is going to leave the third heaven where he lives with God now. By the way, the third heaven, 2 Corinthians. He's going to leave his father's house and he's going to come back. He's going to enter the earth's atmosphere. Just like the bridegroom came back for the bride, Jesus is coming back for us. He leaves heaven to come back for his people. Number two, he's going to come with a shout. Now, this is a military command in the Greek. It comes from the commander-in-chief and he's going to issue the command for the resurrection and the rapture. It's interesting that death has no power over the risen Savior. So when the king of kings and the commander-in-chief issues a command for the resurrection, you know something? The dead will hear his voice, yes? And they will rise, okay? So he's going to issue the command at that point in time for the resurrection and the rapture to begin. Thirdly, there's going to be the voice of the archangel. Michael is the only archangel we know. Last week we had an interesting conversation about the war in heaven being triggered by the rapture. In other words, Jesus is going to be bringing lots of people through the atmosphere, which we mentioned last week is the domain of Satan. He lives in the air around the world, and that's going to trigger a demonic attack. And the, the, the shout of the archangel might be the war cry of Michael leading God's angels against Satan's angels. This also could be Michael is the sub-commander of the Lord's host, and he's merely transmitting the command for the resurrection to begin to the rest of the heavenly host. So it's interesting that the angels are involved in this resurrection rapture process. Number four, so the Lord's going to descend with a command, with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the angelic host is involved in this, and with the trumpet of God. Anytime you see trumpets in Scripture, they are always issued as a form of communication. And there's only two things generally that trumpets were used for in Scripture. One, they were a call to battle. And two, they were a call to worship. I would suspect that this trumpet is both. If there's angelic opposition, demonic opposition for the, trap, for the rapture, then the trumpet call is a call to battle because there may be spiritual war at that point. If it's a call to worship, clearly we're going to be thrilled to worship our coming Savior because coming coming back for us at that point. So the trumpet is what sets the plan in motion. The trumpet is always used to summon people to a course of action. I don't know what the trumpet sound is going to sound like, but I can imagine it will shake the rocks. I can imagine it will be amazing. I mean, you know, I've often thought about what Jesus sounded like when he taught on the slopes of the Sea of Galilee. There's about 20,000 people there, and you think, what kind of a voice does it take to project to 20,000 people? Even with the natural amphitheater, for those who've been there, you have the, the cliffs behind you, but still, that's some voice at that point. So, so we know he's going to come back, he's the trumpet of God, the archangel, etc. Fifth, now we're going to get into the sequence. The dead in Christ shall rise first. What that means is those already dead, those who have already been with him, they're going to be resurrected first. Now, what's a resurrection? A resurrection, you can't have a resurrection without a body, right? If you're dead, where's the body? In the grave, right? 
it may have been already decomposed. You know something? For the creator of the heavens and the earth, that is not a problem, right? No problem. He can make something from nothing. Believe me, he can raise you from the dead. So the already dead are going to be raised first. So verse 14 says, and this I never really understood, never really saw because I always read it. You know, the dead in Christ shall rise first. What does that mean? Well, it says in verse 14 that Jesus will bring with him what? Who's, who's he bringing with him? The souls that are already with him in heaven, right? What, is, what does 2 Corinthians 5, 8 say? To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Instantly, when you're not here and you're in Christ, I know where you are. If you're not here and you know Jesus, you're in the best possible place you can be. You're done with sin, Satan, temptation, suffering, relatives. I mean, good and bad, right? I mean, you know. <laughs> You know, someone came to me and goes, they said, Brad, you must have some really rotten relatives. You keep talking about relatives. I go, I, I got some good ones, and I've got some ones that, you know, I just assume they were Jesus at this point. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure you do too. There are people in your life, you're going, Lord, if you really like them, you take them. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Because they'll need to be changed before you'll be able to live with them. I know, I know, I know. So it says, God will bring back with him those who are already fallen asleep, which means the souls that are in heaven now are coming back with Jesus. And he's going to resurrect their bodies first. So we're going to have a point of connectivity here. The bodies and the souls get together. Apparently in the air as I read this. Because 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, when you're absent, the body home with the Lord. So believers who have already died will be resurrected first, which means they're not going to miss out on anything. See, that was the Thessalonian concern. I mean, this rapture sounds wonderful, but what about the people that are dead? Are they going to miss out on the good times? They're going to miss out. They, they get there first. They get resurrected first at that point in time. So, yeah, better to be in heaven than be here, folks. I mean, come on, right? What did Paul say? Yeah, okay, you get it. So, in Christ or in Jesus, we talk about those who are asleep in Jesus, those who have died in Jesus, means they're baptized into Christ's body, by the Holy Spirit. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, who lives in you? The third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, God himself lives in you. So this resurrection we're talking about here is for church saints only. You need to understand there's more than one resurrection. We're going to get into that in coming weeks. This resurrection is for you and I. We are in Christ. We are part of his church. We are part of his body. From Pentecost to the rapture, that's what he's talking about here. So it's church saints only. Old Testament saints are going to get resurrected later. Tribulation saints are going to get resurrected later as well. Okay, so that's the first five. Number six, we who are alive, if you're still here when the rapture comes and remain, you'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. So if you're alive on earth when Jesus comes back... You will never die. Wow. Maybe he should come back today. Yeah. Right? Be done with all the dying business. That would be really great. So they're not going to die. If you're living when Jesus comes back, you're not going to die. But you will not be resurrected because you won't die. So what's going to happen? You're going to be translated. How many of you are familiar with Enoch and Elijah? Enoch and Elijah were two historical Biblical people who went directly from mortal life with a physical body to immortal life with an immortal body instantly without passing through death first. The vast majority of the time, Hebrews 9.27 as a general principle is true. What does it say? Is appointed for men to die once after this comes judgment. Jesus is saying... The dead in Christ will rise first. They will experience death and resurrection. But if you're still living when I come back to get you, you will not go through death in order to get to life. You will be changed instantly. You will be translated like Enoch and Elijah will. And you will immediately meet me in the air at that point in time. And at that point in time, he says, the dead will receive their bodies. You still have your body. It'll be changed. And you'll instantly meet Jesus in the air. And that's where we get the word rapture from. It says, what's the word? Caught up, right? Caught up is the Greek harpazo. Harpazo means to catch up. That's our English word. That's where rapture comes from. It means the literal catching away or catching up. You say, okay, we're going to catch up. Then what? 
We're going to meet the Lord in the air, thus, we'll ever, thus we shall ever be with the Lord. So resurrected saints and translated saints will meet Jesus in the air. And here's the really good news. You're never going to be separated again, ever. We will return to our Father's house with Jesus. And as I mentioned previously, many of us have loved ones in glory at that point. What it doesn't say, but it implies clearly, is there's a great reunion coming, apparently in the air. On the way up, we're going to meet your loved ones, right? Because they have resurrected bodies instantly. You have translated bodies and you're going to see them and you're going to be together forever. And that's tremendous comfort. See, one of the great joys of the Christian life is that you never, ever have to say goodbye. Never have to say goodbye. What do you say? Until we meet again, right? As a Christian, you never have to say goodbye because you will see your loved ones again. That's just reality. Now, there's a problem. In order to survive heaven, you're gonna need a new body because your current body is not gonna get it. It's not gonna cut it in glory, right? Our sinful bodies, heck, it's not cutting it here. <laughs> Mine isn't, you know? I don't have to look long to see the process of entropy, right? The second law of thermodynamics at work, I wake up in the morning and I go, yeah, you lost a little ground last night, didn't you, bud, you know? And that's going to bed by 10, you know, so it's getting a little pitiful here. So our physical bodies are designed for a physical place, right? We have sinful physical bodies and they're designed for a terrestrial planet called planet Earth. They're not designed for glory. Nobody here can survive heaven with their current body. You won't survive, right? So you're going to need a new body. I'm glad you asked because God has a solution for that. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the great resurrection chapter. You're going to need a new body to survive heaven, and Jesus is going to give you one. 1 Corinthians 15, let's start at verse 50. I would encourage you to look at the whole chapter. It's really a magnificent chapter. But 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood, he's talking about our physical bodies, right? He's talking about the fact that your cholesterol is too high and you've got, you know, uh, you know uh, artificial hips and stuff. It's, it's physical. It's flesh and blood and it's falling apart. It's perishable. And the perishable can't survive the imperishable. That's heaven. Verse 15, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Well, we just talked about that, right? Not everybody's going to die. If Jesus comes back and you're still alive, you're not going to die. You're going to go from life to life. That's what he says. We shall not all sleep. But whether you're in the grave or whether you're alive when he comes back, what's the next phrase? We shall all be changed, right? Verse 52. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, right? And we shall be changed. That change word's now shown up twice. You think, man, this is a makeover. This is a serious makeover. No, no, no. It's brand new. This ain't a makeover, right? This ain't Botox. This is brand new from the ground up. For the perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Here's the principle. Since we cannot survive heaven in our physical body, our earthly body, God will provide us with heavenly bodies for our heavenly home. God is so good. He provides exactly what you need. If you need an earthly body here on earth, you know he provided you with one. Do you know that your body has taken better care of you than you have taken care of it? Your body heals from your stupidity and mine, right? Okay, that's just life. That's part of God's wonderful plan. The good news is we're getting an upgrade, a serious upgrade. So you cannot be raptured into heaven with your current body. It's not going to survive the trip, let alone the destination, right? Our earthly body, subject to sin, is subject to decay and death and all the things that comes because of sin at that point in time. So it cannot enter a sinless, perfect heaven. So our bodies has to be changed and God's going to do that. Now, the change is going to occur on two levels. Number one, or let's say two groups. If you're dead, what happens? You get resurrected, correct? Do you get resurrected with the same old body? Thank God. <laughs> I'm looking at us and I'm going, man, if he resurrects us and we've got the same aches and pains we got now, maybe heaven ain't heaven. 
you know, I mean, if heaven's going to be better than this, then I need a new upgrade. I mean, this thing here is not going to cut it in heaven. I don't want it to cut it in heaven, right? So you're going to get a new body at the resurrection or you're going to get a new body at the translation. You're still living. You won't pass through death. God's going to change your body. Verse 52 says it's going to happen like that, right? It says the twinkling of an eye. It happens in a moment. It is literally the Greek word for Adam, in an atom of time, in a nanosecond, it happens so quick. The twinkling of an eye, by the way, is not the blink of an eye. It's much, much faster than that. He's literally talking about the flash of recognition. Have you ever looked at someone and not quite recognized them? And then all of a sudden, the flash of recognition, oh, I know who you are. You ever had that happen? I know, it's happening less and less. Yeah, I, know, I, know. I get that. What you, who are you? Or when somebody comes up to you and goes, I, I think I know you. And you're thinking, I don't think so. You know, right? I, think, I don't want to know. But anyway, that's, he's talking about the flash of recognition. It's an instant process where we're going to be changed at, you know, at that point in time. Now, if you want to know what kind of body you're going to get, just in case, if you don't like the one you have now, go to verse 35. 35 to 49 is going to tell you what kind of bodies you're going to get. Now, it's important you understand that there were two major issues that Paul was addressing with the Corinthian church. Number one, they said, um, am I going to get the same body? I mean, is it going to be identical? Is it going to be subject to the same trials and tribulations and aches and pains and weight issues or joint issues or whatever it happens to be. So am I going to get the same body or am I going to get a new body? And the answer is you're going to get a new body. It's going to be new. This is not reconstituted body. This is not like instant soup, just add hot water type of thing. You're going to get a brand new body. Because your new body is going to be eternal and it's going to live forever. By the way, I, I, there, and you know something, when we get to chapter 20 and 21, 20, we're going to be there for weeks probably because we've not done a lot of thinking about heaven either. That's a whole other topic, right? Heaven is a physical place, for those of you that are wondering, because you're going to have a physical body. Can you dig that? It's, you, there's no cloud that you sit up there in kind of a spirit. Heaven is not a place for ghosts. Ghosts don't have bodies. Heaven is a physical place. It has bodies, right? Jesus is in heaven now with a physical body, with all the scar tissue, and his body was resurrected, so ours is going to be resurrected, so we're going to have one something like his. It's going to be able to live forever. But... The second question was, am I going to get a new body or it's the old one? The second question is, with this new body, will I still be me? I mean, am I going to still be me? Or is it going to be, I'm going to be Chuck, and Chuck's going to be me. That'd be really confusing, right? I mean, that's what this is going to look like. No, you're going to get a new body, and it will really be you. You will be recognized. You will be known. It will be who you are. See, God made you precisely like he wanted to now. What's the old line? God don't make no junk, right? So the DNA you have now, your character, your personality, your skill set, it's precisely designed, specifically engineered, exactly like God wanted it to be. And I know some of us look in the mirror and go, well, he could use a little help. <laughs> well, some of that is sin plus time. Okay? When you look in the mirror, you're getting a, an idea that sin is at work. But the good news is the new body is not going to fall apart. It's going to be brand new. It's going to be eternal. And it really will be you. It will be a uniquely you. I will look at Danny and I will go, Danny, how you doing? And they say, man, on the other side of heaven, you can't believe what I saw. Uh, Danny will look like Danny. Now, he may look like Danny when he's 25 or 18. I don't know. what, But we will have an eternal body, which means it will be ageless ageless. I think that's going to be the eternal fountain of youth because nothing dies in heaven. Nothing gets old, nothing decays. So it may be you at your prime. You know, my friend Doug Culhane says, the older I get, the better I was. You know, but I can't remember it now. See, that's the problem. So we're kind of making it up as we go. So you want to see what your body's like? Let's go to verse 42. He says, I'm going to contrast your old body and your new body, just to give you an idea. So is also the resurrection of the dead. Your body is sown a perishable body or a corruptible body. 
your new one is going to be an imperishable or incorruptible body. So your new body is not going to decay, it's not going to perish, it's not going to fall apart, it's not subject to any of the problems we have in this life. Verse 43, the next verse says, your new body is going to be a glorified body. Your new body is going to be sinless, it's going to be glorified, it's not a sinful body, it's not a dishonored body, it's a glorified body. When you see the glory of God, it always involves light, huge amounts of light, radiant. Matter of fact, I think you could probably make a pretty good case that prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were made in whose image? God's image. The essence of God is incorruptible light, holiness, and he effulgates, he radiates light. He is radiant God. I'm persuaded that Adam and Eve probably were light bearers. They probably gave off light. You probably would look at them now and go, man, these people are so bright, I can't look at them. Well, in a sinless state, if you're made in God's image and God is a light giver, pretty high probability you're going to have a glorified body, which means it's going to radiate light because you're the son and daughter of the king. Yes. That's true. D D Tom just said Daniel 12 tells us that you will shine like stars. Some of us. <laughs> Need a light bulb change, you know? I want those LED halogens, baby, okay? Yeah, anyway, yeah, it, it, very, very interesting. See, one of, the, one of our challenges is we live in this sinful, broken planet, and it's all we know. We really have no idea what life on earth was like prior to sin. So when we look at heaven, we're looking at this and going, a body that never hurts, never falls apart, never decays, never gets old, never... How do I relate to that? I mean, you know, there'll be no medical community in heaven because there's nothing to fix. No psychiatric community, no firefighters, no police officers. Just a lot of us going to be out of work, right? I mean, you know, because a lot of this planet, we spend time doing what? Repairing what's broken. Well, we're going to a place where nothing is broken. Gonna have a lot of free time. Yeah, free time. Love each other and love Jesus. It's gonna be wonderful. Number 40, the last half of verse 43. We're gonna get a body that's powerful. We're gonna get a body of resurrection power. Your new body's not gonna get tired. Your body today gets tired. It decays. It falls apart. The new one's not gonna do that. Verse 44 to 46. Let's just read that. If sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, Adam, is a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is now is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So we live with the natural body now, one that's made up of flesh and blood and earthly DNA. And the new one we get, a spiritual body, is not going to be like that. Probably the best model we have for what our resurrection bodies will look like is who? Jesus. When Jesus was resurrected, he had a body that's obviously flesh and bone. It doesn't say flesh and blood, it says flesh and bone. We know the blood was shed at the cross. So I suspect we won't, have, we won't need blood in heaven because what, is, what do we know about blood? The life of the body is in the blood. Yeah, earthly life. When we're in heaven, you don't need blood to give you life. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be far better than here at this point in time. So we have a body like Jesus who is physical. Jesus had a physical body, but it was also a spiritual body that was not subject to the space-time dimension. Jesus went through doors, walls, and those were no object. Now, I admit to you that I don't know how much of Jesus' resurrection body is going to be ours because he's God. So I'm not quite sure. I'm not saying everything Jesus did out post-resurrection you're going to be able to do. I don't know that because there's a chunk of what he did that may just be as a result of his deity. But when you read this, you're kind of going, this is a pretty close description that could match a lot of what Jesus' resurrection body was like because he is our forebear. Because he was resurrected, we will live. Because he lives, we'll live too. So we'll have the same kind of life he did, which means we'll have a body that's going to be similar to his. Because his body's in heaven, our body's going to be in heaven with him. We're his children. Do your children look like you? Do they have your DNA code? Yeah, they do. They might even behave like you sometimes, right? Yeah, Chuck. Yes, uh, my uh, daughter had a miscarriage, and she was asking me one day, will we recognize, well, I recognize my grandson or granddaughter up there. And I says, I don't know how that works, but we will be in 
Sure. Absolutely. And she says, so you think that mom's up there with the grandchild? Oh, yeah. Heaven is a physical place with a physical body. Now, I don't know how God does what he does, but I don't know how he said, let there be, and there was. So when he says, let there be light, there was light. If he created you out of nothing, I suspect very clearly he can create a heavens and an earth. He's there right now. If you've got a big enough God, none of this is a problem. If you don't, you better work on other things. Yeah. Uh, Psalm uh, 17, verse 15. Okay. Uh, the Psalmist says, uh, Psalm 17, verse 15. Yes, Psalm 17, 15. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Awake is a period of resurrection, which means you're going to see Jesus what? Face to face. And it says we will be like him, 1 John, because we will see him as he is. See, at that point in time, you're not seeing him by faith. You're seeing him with your physical eyes. You will have physical eyes in heaven. It'll be a relationship just like you have here. A sinless relationship will be wonderful. Verse 47 to 49 says you're going to get a heavenly body. It's designed to live in heaven. And verse 53 says you're going to get an immortal body. It's your current body will die. Your new body is going to live forever. So, summary. We know we're not going to stay here forever. We know that Jesus is coming back for us. We know that we will receive a new body, one designed for heaven, not earth. Key question, when's this going to happen? Hopefully this afternoon. Right? That would be good. So, this brings us to the timing of the rapture. This is a very provocative topic. There are three major viewpoints on the timing. Hang on just a second. Go ahead. Um, so, okay, if we get a spiritual body after our body's resurrection, um, what is with Jesus in heaven? Is it our soul? No, no, no. You get a physical body at the resurrection. Right. So it will be a resurrection body. It won't be limited like your current body is, but it will be physical and spiritual. Both. Okay. So, if you're with Christ... Right. When? When? Now your soul's with him, your body's in the ground. When you resurrect, he's going to give your body new life. It's new. You don't get your old, old body back. Your old body, you're not getting back. You're getting back you. It'll be your body. You'll be recognizable, but it's a resurrection body. He's going to unite the, the body and the spirit again, the body and soul. Right now, loved ones are in heaven. Their essence, their soul's in heaven. Their spirit's in heaven. Their body's in the ground. That body is going to be given new life resurrected body, and in heaven, you will be body and soul together forever with Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, Brad, I've got a question. I, I have heard that singers such as my wife will still be able to sing in heaven. I, I can't remember where I heard that. But I got a question. What, you know, God has blessed me with the ability play music. I find it incredible that God would give you a gift here to praise him and that gift would not be available in heaven. Heaven is all about what? Worship and praise and joy. Whatever gift you have been given here, I find it incomprehensible that God would not say, you know, I gave you that gift for a reason. You praise me down there, and you're going to praise me up here. Whatever that gift is. Well, I can't sing, and I'm counting on me. I, <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. No, no, I, I understand. I understand. This is where we enter the mystery. You know, there's some things we don't know. But I like what someone said, whatever you need in heaven for your perfect joy, you will have. Whatever that happens to be. Now you tell God, here's what I need for my perfect joy. And your heavenly father says, when you're sinless, you'll know a whole lot more about that than you will now. Yes. Instantly. Your souls comes back with Jesus. It says the Lord's going to descend from heaven with a shout and he's going to bring those back with him. He's talking about bringing your soul. He's going to bring your body up. 
at the, at, at, when the rapture comes, if you've already you, you've died, he's going to resurrect your body at that time and he's bringing your soul back to meet your body in the air. He's going to reunite the body and soul. If you haven't died, you get a brand new body instantly on the way up. Right? It's a translation process. Enoch and Elijah would be our models at that point. See, one of the things that bother, and I could, I could spend a lot of time on, 2 Corinthians talked about the, the fact that we have a body and we need a body and we were created to have a body. You know something? You need a body in heaven. There's no period in scripture where being disembodied is viewed as a good thing. People say, well, I have a body. Yes, you have a body, but you also are a body. Right? Same thing. All right. Let's talk about the timing of the rapture. I've got 10 minutes. I've got to rock and roll here. So, three major viewpoints, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, which means the rapture that occurs before the tribulation, that seven-year period, in the middle of that seven-year period, at the end of that seven-year period. I'm going to take a position, just to be real frank with you, that a pre-tribulation rapture best fits the evidence of Scripture at that point in time. Here's the principle. The rapture of the church will precede the tribulation. By the way, there's competent scholars that would disagree with this position. I think Scripture... This particular model best fits available scripture by far. This should motivate us to share the good news that Jesus saves. Okay, first is an argument from absence. There is no biblical passage anywhere in scripture discussing the tribulation that ever mentions the church. Anytime in scripture the tribulation is mentioned, the church is absent, never even hinted at. So there's no biblical reference to the church and revelation ever. The church is mentioned multiple times in Revelation 1 to 5. When the, when the tribulation starts in chapter 6, the church is never mentioned again until chapter 19. When the tribulation is over and the church is in heaven. So it's an argument from absence, but boy, it's a powerful argument at that point in time. It says to be absent of the body is what? So if the church is not on earth, they're in heaven. Must be in heaven. Second, let's take a look real quick at 1 Thessalonians 1. 1 Thessalonians 1. For those of you that want some cross-references here, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 to 10. It says in the last part of verse 10 that Jesus, I'm just going to read him for you. Uh, for they themselves report about us what kind of re reception we had with you, how you turned from God to God, from idols, serve the living true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, underline this, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. Wrath means God's commitment to destroy sin. Revelation is loaded with God's wrath against sinful man during the tribulation period. Revelation 6, 14, 15, 16, etc. So the wrath they're talking about here is not the wrath of hell. Jesus already saved you from hell. We're talking about future wrath during the tribulation period of time that Jesus has delivered his children from, his church from. So the church is not destined for wrath because Jesus has come to deliver you from that. You want another cross-reference, 1 Thessalonians 5. And you can look through the first 10 verses. I'm just going to jump in 1 Thessalonians verse 2. Get a pen out. For you yourselves know full well that the, underline this, day of the Lord, day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Verse 9. For God has not, underline this, destined us for wrath. God has not destined us, his church, for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Anytime in the scripture you see the day of the Lord, the day of Jehovah, it's loaded throughout the Old Testament, he's always talking about the tribulation. The day of the Lord throughout the Old Testament is always talking about that seven-year tribulation period of time. So the wrath of God, this day of the Lord, is the day to which the church was not destined. You were not destined to wrath. You were not destined to go through the tribulation. He's, he's destined us for salvation through Jesus Christ, and that's why we're here. Third one, Revelation 3.10. We've gone through this. I'll just review it with you high level. Can I ask a question, brother? Yes. Okay. Right. So there's some servants who are being killed. Sure, but th that's not the church. Those are tribulation saints. By the way, Carolyn raises a good question. People get saved all through the tribulation. Amen. 
The church is gone, but there's the 144,000 witnesses. We have angels flying in mid-heaven. We have two witnesses. There are people saved all through the seven-year tribulation. That's who they're talking about. They get martyred for their faith, and they're under the altar and saying, God, would you bring justice? Come on, get these people. They're killing us, right? Literally killing us. Oh, yeah, there's a whole set of people saved that are not part of the church. The church ends at the rapture. That doesn't mean there's not saints saved throughout the tribulation. There's a whole slew of tribulation saints, millions of them, that are going to get saved during the tribulation. The church won't be on sight. The church will be in heaven at that point in time. No, 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 no. That's Jews, Gentiles. God's got so many people he's going to save during the tribulation. It'll probably be the greatest evangelism explosion in the history of humanity. It's going to be unbelievable. It's going to be unbelievable, both good and bad. Revelation 3.10. This is a word to the church, Philadelphia, and he's talking to the church in general. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from what? The hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. So it's a promise that his church, that they will be kept from the period of testing, the entire world, anybody on the world, is going to experience this. It doesn't say kept during, kept through. It says kept from. It says kept from the very hour of the testing. It doesn't say I'm going to keep you safe through the trial. It says I'm going to remove you before the trial begins at that point. Because millions of people come to faith in the tribulation. Many of these tribulation saints are going to be slaughtered by Antichrist. So if this was a general rule of thumb, you would say, well, I don't think your promise to keep us safe really came true here because a lot of us are getting killed. Well, he's not talking about tribulation saints. He's talking about the church. He says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing. And he says, if you're in the whole world and you're on the planet at that period of time, you will experience the tribulation. If you're on planet Earth during the tribulation, there is no escape from it. You're going to experience all of it at that point. The only escape is to remove prior to the tribulation. Okay, the last one is the doctrine of eminence that would demand a pre-tribulational rapture. The Bible teaches that the Messiah can return when? At any time. At any time. That's what imminent means. Imminent. It's imminent. If the rapture of the church occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation, then we'll know the rapture in advance. Right? Because when the tribulation starts, count three and a half years. Okay, three and a half years, we're out of here. We just got to survive three and a half years. So I have a problem with the mid-trib rapture. If you say, well, the rapture is going to occur at the end of the tribulation. Well, all I got to do is say, when does the tribulation start? Count seven years, and I know when he's coming. Well, Scripture says no one knows when he's coming. It says be ready at any time because his return for his church is imminent at that point in time. James 5.8. <clears throat> you too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand, James 5, 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. You yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Jesus in Revelation 22 says, behold, I am coming quickly. Okay, so we know the rapture has to precede the tribulation. We know the rapture is imminent. It can occur any time. There is no prophecy yet to be fulfilled before the rapture occurs. We know the beginning of the tribulation is not the rapture. Many, many people think, well, as soon as the church is out of here, the tribulation begins. Scripture doesn't teach that. We know the beginning of the tribulation is when the Antichrist signs a seven-year covenant with Israel. That's the beginning. Daniel 9, 27. The rapture does not trigger the tribulation. The signing of the seven-year covenant with Israel triggers the great tribulation. The rapture could occur just before the tribulation. The rapture could occur 10 years before the tribulation. There is no biblical reference that said as soon as the church is gone, we instantly go into the tribulation. The most important thing is that Jesus can come for you at any time. So the mandate is be ready. Live with an eternal perspective in mind, right? Stop getting sucked into the stuff of this life. I mean, you're here to use this world for the glory of God. But when he comes for you, whether it's via death, and like we talked about, a lot of us have loved ones in heaven, or whether he comes with us in the rapture, it could happen any time. So live with an eternal frame of reference. Okay, real briefly before we do prayer requests. Number one, Jesus is coming again to take his believers with him to his heavenly home. That is tremendous hope and comfort. 1 Thessalonians 4, when Jesus returns, 
Dead believers will be resurrected. Living believers will be translated. Together we will meet Jesus in the air to live forever with him in heaven. Tremendous comfort. 1 Corinthians 15. Since we cannot survive heaven in this earthly body, God's going to provide us with a heavenly body for our heavenly home. And looking around the room, we all need one. Right? When you get up in the morning, you definitely need one. Even when you're 18, you need one. Right? You have allergies at that age, I'm told. The rapture of the church is going to precede the tribulation. This should motivate us to share the good news. I talk to people all the time and they go, man, I'm really glad I'm not going through the tribulation. I say, I am too. Why? Well, I just, I don't, I don't want to be uncomfortable. <laughs> really? Come on. The fact that you skip the tribulation should not make you lazy. It should motivate you to tell people that Jesus saves. Let's get on with this, right? Okay. I love you guys so much. Thank you for um, being here and being attentive. Maintain that eternal perspective. By the way, there is nothing like having a loved one in heaven that will keep you in eternal perspective. You know that. Many of you know that. You get that.